You're listening to an ACCA podcast. Welcome to the National Gallery of Victoria. My name is Pip Wallace. I'm Curator of Contemporary Art here. Um, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people, who are the traditional custodians of the land, and to acknowledge that this place has been a place of cultural gathering for a long time. I would also like to pay respects to the elders, both past, present and future, of the Kulin Nation and extend respect to any Indigenous Australians present. So thank you for joining us today for this exciting event, a discussion between Max Delaney and Eva Rothschild. We're so thrilled to have them here today. I'll give you a little introduction to Eva and her work and then hand over to them. Uh, Eva Rothschild was born in Dublin and currently lives and works in London. She uh, was awarded the 2012 Children's Commission at London's Whitechapel Gallery and the 2009 Devine Commission in Tate, Britain. In 2011, she was commissioned to produce a new public work empire for New York's Public Art Fund, um, with recent public exhibitions including Alternative to Power, the New Art Gallery Walsall, um, 2016, a gated community, Sonneveld House, Rotterdam, 2016, and sightings at the National Sculpture Centre, Dallas, in 2012, amongst many others. Um, Eva's work has developed out of the legacy of modernism um, and modernist sculptural traditions, in particular the formal languages of artists such as Barbara Hepworth and Eva Hess. Um, she is similarly committed to uh, the bodily encounter with sculptural forms, um, as well as mass, volume, materiality, um, as well as humour, illusion and ritual. Um, the work is concerned with how certain qualities of corporeality might be invested with spiritual meaning and the precise point at which narrative might arise out of formal arrangements. Excitingly, Eva will represent Ireland at the 2009 Venice Biennale, so it's especially exciting to have her here today ahead of that um, huge moment in her career. Um, she has said of the work that she'll create for the pavilion that it will be an immersive work with political underpinnings, so perhaps we might hear a little more. Leave it up to Max <laughs> to direct that. Max Delaney is Artistic Director and CEO of the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. Um, he was formerly Senior Curator of Contemporary Art here at the National Gallery of Victoria and previously Director at Monash University Museum of Art. He's also held the position since 2011 of Adjunct Associate Professor Curatorial Practice in the Faculty of Art and Design at Monash University. Eva is in Melbourne for her solo exhibition, Cosmos, which opens at ACCA next week on Thursday evening, the 27th of September at 6pm, public opening, and runs until the 25th of November. It's curated by Max and Annika Christensen, and it's presented in association with the Melbourne International Arts Festival. I wanted to also mention a special event happening as part of the exhibition, which is Cut Out, a performance developed by Melbourne choreographer Joe Lloyd in response to Eva's exhibition um, and with Eva's collaboration on the costume design. Um, and it's happening on the 1st of October, so I encourage you to book because that's quite an exceptional collaboration. Here at the NGV, you can see Eva's work, An Array of 2016, currently on display on level three in the Contemporary Collection Gallery. So if you haven't already been up there, you'll have time after the talk. You'll also have time to ask some questions um, and our um, public programs staff today will be on hand with microphones. So have them ready um, as Max and Eva conclude. But for now, I invite Max and Eva Rothschild to the stage. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Pip, and um, good afternoon, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us today. Um, I, too, would like to acknowledge the Bunwurrung and the Wurundjeri as sovereign custodians of the land upon which we meet and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging, and to all First Nations people who might join us this afternoon. Um, as Pip mentioned, we're really excited to present Eva Rothschild Cosmos at um, ACCA, um, opening next Thursday, presented in association with the Melbourne International Arts Festival and also with uh, City Gallery Wellington, where the exhibition will travel uh, early next year. And we acknowledge also the support of our partners and Culture Ireland. Um, 
It's also happy timing, as Pip mentioned, that um, the NGV have recently acquired a major work which is resplendently displayed upstairs on the third floor of the gallery here at NGV International um, called An Array. Um, and we thank the NGV for their collaboration for this afternoon's program. Um, it's really exciting to have Eva here in Australia. Eva is one of the most masterful sculptors whose uncompromising work is ambitious in scale, dexterous in experiment, and she's very much at the heart of her powers. Um, Acker's exhibition is the first major survey of Eva's work in Australia and is a very timely show in advance of her representation um, of Ireland uh, next year in Venice. So, Eva, firstly, um, welcome back to Melbourne. Um, it's wonderful to have you here and it's really exciting to be developing the show together. Um, perhaps just as a bit of, bit of background to begin, um, I might just note that you grew up in Dublin. Uh, you first went to art school in Belfast. You spent some formative years uh, in Glasgow in the mid-1990s before moving to London in the later 90s where you did a postgraduate degree at Goldsmiths. So uh, perhaps if you could just start by letting us know what were you studying and what if, you know, were those contexts influential or informative um, in those formative years? So I studied art, so that was quite influential for me um, and formative. Um, yeah, so I, I grew up in Dublin, as you said, and I went to art school in Dublin for two years. And uh, one of the reasons that I wanted to move out of Dublin was because I found that the art school in Dublin, as most art schools are, was quite prescriptive in that you had to choose painting, print, or sculpture. And um, as is probably evidenced in my work, although I'm firmly a sculptor, I don't like to stay with one thing. So I decided to go to Belfast uh, to continue my studies because they opened a, uh, they offered an open art degree. Um, so I moved to Belfast in 1990. So I was there from 90 to 93 and then I moved to Glasgow after that, which was extremely formative, although I never actually studied there. I just lived there and became involved with the Artist Run Space Transmission Gallery, which is where I first met you um, and Charlotte Day. Um, and for me, that was probably the sort of... It was very different than doing my degree because... The degree was very focused on sort of studio practice, but also having gone to college in Belfast in the 1990s, there was no sense of a context for making art or the idea that actually you could really do this all the time, you know, regardless of what you actually wanted. And then going to Glasgow, I was surrounded by people who were actually doing, you know, they'd left university and they were making things and organizing things and were very proactive and I became very involved in that. And I think that that sort of gave me a real sense of possibility, which then hopefully, you know, carried me forwards onto other things I, I did. Then I went to Amsterdam for a year on a residency and then came to London and, and went did the postgraduate. And uh, I guess I've been there ever since. Um, your forthcoming exhibition is called Cosmos with a K, and I think the K has a very sculptural quality and sort of constructivist quality, but can you perhaps reflect on the title and how it relates to the scope of the exhibition? Well, there's a piece in the exhibition with the title Cosmos, so I suppose it refers to that, but it's not sort of um, naming that piece. That one begins with a C. Um, I suppose the use of the K is like traditionally the K has been use, used in place of a C. I'm not quite sure what the sort of whole um, kind of background to that is, but it's traditionally been used, I, I suppose, to um, signify a sort of no, notion of divergence from the mainstream. Um, so we went through a whole run of titles for this exhibition, actually. Um, and in the end, I decided to use Cosmos, which refers to the large sculpture in the exhibition, but also to the idea of I suppose, inclusi inclusivity um, and the cosmos and the world and the universe and the idea of sort of something expanding, which is, is very much how I view practice as something that should constantly be expanding. 
and it does, I think, also refer to the various constellations of your practice which sit in dialogue with each other. Yeah, I guess so. Um, I might just ask you about materials. Materials are obviously very important to you. Um, you nothing seems out of bounds. You seem ha very happy to engage with a whole range of materials from concrete to plastics to leather, ceramics, resins, um, and, of course, painting. Um, what would, how would you describe your relationship to materials? Um... I would describe it as sort of fundamentally essential to my practice. So I would see myself as very much a materials-based artist in that so much of my decision-making actually comes from engagement with the materiality of sculpture. Um, so I work... Uh, if any of you know my work, you'll know... Well, I guess you can see it behind me, so... If you don't know it, you'll know some of it now. Um, I'm sorry, I find this microphone a bit difficult. It's quite sort of an accessory... Uh, like it's like a drink or something. So, yeah, sorry if it becomes a bit performative. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, I, I work in a studio. My sort of primary practice is studio-based. I also work with fabricators um, on larger works because obviously I couldn't make them. But the idea of sort of being close to the material and seeing what can happen with it and its possibilities is very central to to sort of, I suppose, it's not just what the work needs to do as a sculpture. I think that in some ways the idea of making comes down to something quite physical and personal in terms of the actual idea of work and the transformation of materials almost at a sort of alchemical level. And I suppose there's a sort of... Um, tension between the desire to make the transcendent art object and then the sort of pragmatic reality of actually getting that done. And that's one of the things that I find sort of endlessly engaging about sculpture, both in my apprehension of other people's sculptures, which I can apprehend sort of fully as, as fully formed objects, and then in my own kind of tension within the making, which is so often about fault-finding process um, you know, graft, um, you know, logistics, and then this desire for this sort of, um, yeah, magical object. So I find that sort of sense of the very basic idea of transformation of materials really interesting. And then also, I should say, that increasingly as um, our sort of apprehension of the, of the world and our interaction with um, the world and with... Um, sort of modes of communication becomes more screen-based and more sort of ethereal. I find the sort of actual sculptural experience and that sort of proximity to actual materiality has become even more important to me. And more important in terms of actually getting people to see the work and to be with the work. Uh, so that there's a very clear sense, I think, in the new works that the, uh, the photograph is in no way a substitute for the actual experience of the work. Yeah, because I think the, the, the question of manufacture, I mean, literally the handmade or the handmaking is really important and certainly many of your works have a kind of bodily presence or even like a residue or an index of the body and your engagement with that object um, or a liveliness in the materials. But on the other hand, you also work with industrially um, produced, um, outsourced um, objects which have a much cooler kind of process. And... Um, I wonder how you would describe that process. Like, there is this drama, I think, or tension between the sort of the organic and the technological which operates in your work. Yeah, I think so. But it's interesting in how much of what we perhaps perceive as technological actually is ultimately made by hand. You know, so the drawings might take place within the, you know, software, but the welding is going to take place by hand, you know, and, and actually with a process that's quite unchanged. So I think that so much of the sort of quite high-end work we see is actually still the result of... It may not be my manual labour, or my, my manual labour may have just been a small part of that, but actually it is the, the action of, you know, bodies on material that creates that. But for me, in terms of those larger architectural scale works, I do have a different relationship to them in that... I can be much more the audience for them than I can be of the works I make myself because while I have a greater knowledge of them than perhaps a regular audience, because I haven't got the same 
sort of physical involvement with them and the, and the sense that I could manipulate them further, they sort of come to me fully formed and I experience them much more as a viewer. So for me, that, um, that sort of difference, both in apprehension for myself as well as in sort of fabrication, is, is um, quite exciting and sometimes quite scary. Um, there are a number of new works in the exhibition which is really exciting, some major new installations. Um, one of the new works is called Hazard, and it's a stack of brick forms which dissects the gallery. Um, it's painted in a geometric pattern. It's not unrelated to a work called Border, which we'll see in the slides here later on. Um, it's reminiscent of minimalist sculpture and also geometric painting, but it's also very much related to forms that we see in the wider world, what you've referred to as hazard architecture. Mm -hmm. Could you refer perhaps reflect on that? form? Yeah, I mean, I think actually Melbourne is somewhere that sort of seems to have more of this than anywhere else. So um, obviously, uh, I, grew up, I grew up in the uh, in Dublin, sort of near the harbour, and all through my sort of, I guess, my formative years, I was very aware of the sort of signage and the, the sort of architecture of the harbour and of sort of control because uh, it was by the ferry terminal and um, the sort of way that things were painted as well to sort of control movement. And then, you know, so that, that's sort of been an interest in my work. I've worked a lot with stripes, with sort of breaking up areas. But then over the sort of past years, with um, obviously the increased sort of anxiety around uh, specific types of terrorist attacks, there, there's been this sort of proliferation of kind of block dropping all around uh, most Western cities, it seems. And I, I was interested in how these forms kind of um, have moved from the sort of temporary to the permanent without any actual shift in their uh, physicality. There's just a sense that they're here to stay. Um, and then at the same time, I suppose, as a sculptor, you know, I imagine most people don't particularly like those objects, but I find them very compelling because they are so uh, much just what they are. They have very little um, concession to um, aesthetics or perhaps sort of town planning or all the sort of concerns that you probably would have to deal with if you wanted to put up, I don't know, a railing or something. It's it's the sort of provisional made permanent. Um, and then also they've become obviously a site for graffiti, for decoration. I noticed here there's these kind of funny little jackets that get put on them, um, about which I would be very ambivalent. Um, uh, that's polite. Uh, so I, th I think this sort of sense of that these, these abstracted objects are just kind of dropping in, you know, as elements of control, but also providing a kind of a, a sort of palette or something for the city. Um, interest me, and also I'm I'm interested in how architecture controls people's movement, um, both you know as an artwork or within the city, and then also in particular and increasingly in areas where there is a perceived threat or there's a sort of temporary setup. Looking at sort of the architecture around both sort of uh, things which strangely kind of have a similar sort of feeling and similar kind of. Um, what would you say, sort of detritus afterwards, sort of in terms of perhaps refugee camps or also sort of festivals, which is where I suppose young people go to experience the transient, but in a, in a totally different way. Um, another one of the major new works is the work Cosmos, you referred to before. Um, it's a very large, monumentally scaled uh, minimalist work. It is um, over three metres, 50 or 70 in height. Um, it is it sort of precariously tails over the viewer. There's a kind of confusion of interior and exterior space. And it's also very much dealing with spatial and perception around colour and painting. Mm -hmm. um, and that also seems to choreograph the viewer as well. It, it, it is a kind of assemblage of parts. These sort of, you get the stroboscopic effect mm -hmm. from the bars and the coloration. Um, how important is that kind of idea of movement in relationship to the work? Well, I like a bit of control in the work, you know. Um, so, I mean, for me, I'm quite concerned with, with the sort of larger objects. Like, I think you've, you've seen some of the public sculptures come up here. Um, I'm really interested in how you can make an object that has a 
sort of commanding presence or, you know, it has scale, but it doesn't necessarily have volume. And so where I've made public sculptures or out outdoor sculptures, they have always been th uh, objects that you can be both within and without. So they have sort of a sense that although they take up the space, they don't block it, they just perhaps direct your movement through it. And then I'm also interested in how, because I use quite a lot of color in the work, although, I mean, black would be the main color for the work, but I also use quite a lot of color because I'm very interested in how the use of color disturbs the, our perception of the surface and how it creates different sort of speeds in terms of the eye traveling over a surface or trying to understand the materiality or the sort of empirical kind of nature of the object. So with Cosmos, the external form uh, appears as a sort of gate-like structure that's quite kind of forbidding. It's all um, in a gloss black. But then the internal is much softer and the paint... Is based on sort of is sort of based on um, gradients and image images, which is why it's called Cosmos, from the Hubble Space Tele Telescope, and um, which are you know we view as um, images of the cosmos, but actually they're highly coloured so that we can see them. It doesn't really look like that, um, and I was sort of interested in that sort of depiction of the dematerialized, and I suppose um, unusually for me because I tend to use block colour. I really wanted to sort of see how the colour could, um, I suppose, make some attempt to sort of dematerialise uh, visually what we know to be sort of empirically there and sort of atomically present. And Pip mentioned before that your work is you know, strongly engaged with certain histories of modernist um, art and sculpture and architecture but and formalist, I guess, histories as well. But you do seem to seek to imbue ideas of magic or sorcery or ritual into these often formalist objects. So I just um, would be interested to understand, you know, how you sort of grapple with these histories, you know, and perhaps seek to both um, engage with, but sometimes undermine or transform those formalist legacies. Well, it's funny because I think I, although I have you know an awareness of all of those, those things, and there's certain um, artists who I really admire within those traditions, it's not something that I. Um, it's never a starting point for me. It's not, um, I suppose, the idea of... I mean, because, I mean, how you could sort of create at this time without there being a presence of the sort of legacy of modernism, I mean, it would be very difficult unless you're sort of an outsider artist. And obviously, I did go to art school. I'm not an outsider artist. I mean, I know that term is quite vexed, but I think so it's there... But I don't feel it to be, it's more like it sort of creeps up unnoticed in a way. Like this morning when we were at the Smithson exhibition and there was a very small image of a piece by Eva Hesse. And actually it looks very similar to a piece I have in the show. But I hadn't, and while I was aware of that work, I hadn't sort of thought about it in that way. But it's sort of things kind of bubble up, I guess. And there's forms that we share, and I'm interested in that sort of idea of a sort of common lexicon, perhaps, and in I'm interested in sort of some of the stuff that Smithson is talking about in, in relation to that exhibition about the crystalline form, about sort of, I suppose, like sacred geometries, um, sort of quite fundamental sort of um, presences within architecture, and... Um, and the sort of built environment really from the beginning, you know, from, from sort of thousands of years ago, I'd say would have almost an equal presence within my work. And then the other thing is that I am a uh, firm believer in almost everything. So I couldn't really um, actually make art or, or make anything without it somehow having some kind of sense of anxiety, superstition, belief, transcendence. Um, I myself grew up within a sort of Catholic background, so the idea of an object or an image having a power beyond its material presence is not unusual to me. And I'm sort of, I, I for me, I feel like um, it's sort of impossible to view the world or to view objects without that sense of the sort of almost phenomenological, supernatural, philosophical, spiritual, religious whatever, it's like they just never exist apart from that in some way. Um, even when the form itself may be quite prosaic or quite 
um, simple. So I'm always open to that idea of the transcendent within the artwork. And perhaps I'm um, sticking with Eva Hesse for a minute. Um, uh, and Pip mentioned also Barbara Hepworth before, and there are many other reference points in your work. But um, to what extent might your work be informed by feminist practices or histories? Just by being born, I think, yeah. It's like, it's just there, you know? And I think that um, how... I mean, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for those histories. And, and so it's like I just couldn't separate those from, from sort of who I am and how I am. And I think that, uh, you know, women are still quite underrepresented at a certain level in the art world. I think that um, sort of just the fact of making and being here, it, it just is, is a presence in the work. And, and I, it's like, um, I think at the moment, it's, it's sort of a good moment because actually people seem quite happy to discuss this and happy to sort of say, yes, this is my interest. And I know when I was at university, basically, you know, if you... If you and, and this certainly wasn't my view, but if you were to suggest to many of the people I was at university with that they were feminists, they'd be like, ooh, no, I wouldn't be a feminist. You know, and you're going like, well, you're actually at university, so, you know, you, you need to acknowledge this, you know. And I think that that shift and that sort of... Um, kind of claiming of, of sort of feminism and of equality and, and a sort of rather than a shying away from it, it's, it's very positive to see that. So yes, absolutely. And, and you mentioned your Catholic upbringing. There's a new work in the exhibition um, which is called The Sacrificial Lair. Um, I think we've titled it, have we? Yeah, I think um, so. And it's a really, it's an extraordinary new work and it's quite an experimental work. It's at a grand scale. And it's not finished yet. It's not finished yet. So, <laughs> Eva hasn't really even experienced it as yet, but it's a very large curtain, a sort of operatic scale backdrop and um, something which is like a portal to pass through. Um, and I guess, you know, it could relate to the kind of ecclesiastical kind of space of the curtain, but it also perhaps might relate to banners. And I know early works of yours have engaged with processions and marches and those ceremonial types of objects. Mm -hmm. Is that something which... It, Continues. Yeah, because that work's not really finished. I can't really process it yet. So your guess is as good as mine at the moment. But I think... Um, but it was interesting in terms of sort of titling, because obviously I only really decided on that. But part of that was actually when you were... You were talking about the process by which it's made, because it's this taking apart of these sheets. And often in that situation, you have to throw away some. And that's called the sacrificial layer. But obviously to transpose the spelling to layer completely changes that. So it's uh, kind of to be confirmed, I think. But um, for me as well, that's really exciting about making work for somewhere like Echo, where you can actually invest in making a work at scale that's new and is experimental within the practice. Because for me, I'm always interested in, like I said at the beginning, expanding the practice, bringing in new things, sort of... Um, in a way, kind of making the practice as diverse as possible so, so that there isn't necessarily connections between the sort of different works that are obvious. There's always a sort of sense of it trying to, I guess, bring something else into its language. Um, but I'm excited to see that work and I'll probably know more about it next week. And speaking just about the sacrificial, um, another work which is an ongoing work in your work is called Technical Support. Yeah. And it is um, a work which Eva makes repeatedly. This work here, actually, of cast gaffer tape rolls, which is kind of precariously totemic work from floor to ceiling. And um, with gaffer tape, it's a studio. It sort of refers to studio processes, yeah. but of course it becomes sacrificial and it's only there provisionally and is usually a form of waste, but you've made this kind of material into a monumental form. Mm -hmm. um, is that something...? Yeah, I mean, that work is really quite sort of important to me and important in relation to my studio practice because it's something we would work on in the studio kind of most days because I began casting these tapes... Um, because initially I began resting these forms. I was, and this is why studio practice is so important in terms of advancing the work. Um, so when I was making head-like structures for exhibition, 
I needed something to rest them on, and the best thing to rest them on was rolls of tape. But then I would need the tape, so I began casting the tape. So I would have the, I would have the object that was the same as the tape, but I didn't keep needing to take it away to use it. But then over time, something, you know, then the artwork was being made and it needed to stand on something and still the tape was the best thing. So then that sort of kind of found its way into being an object. And then I suppose that increase, I mean, because I, I think it really is something that came out of studio practice, that work. And so it's quite sort of demonstrative of how work, sometimes you can't say how work evolves, but with that one, it was so clear. So then in making these multiple heads, I ended up making these multiple tapes. And then I sort of, the other thing as well is in, in buying materials, because for so long I didn't really have very much money to buy any materials. I never wanted to waste anything. So when you mix up the resin that I use, there's always some left, you know? So then I was like, well, I use this to cast the tapes. So then it became a sort of practice and I ended up with tons and tons of tapes. And then every time I get a tape, I'd make a mold and, so I had more and more and more of them. And uh, so much of my work is based on sort of episodic form where rather than there being a unified whole, um, pretty much everything I make is made of, of accumulated objects. And these objects were accumulating and accumulating in the studio as we were making other works. And then there sort of becomes a point, and it happens quite often in studio practice, where something that's peripheral just kind of your focus shifts and it becomes sort of it sort of comes to the center of your vision and suddenly you go that's the thing that is what I need and what I want and so I was making an exhibition I think maybe four years ago and I have been interested in making because I'm quite interested in classical architecture and classical architectural forms specifically columns and in scrolling through these images you probably will have seen quite a number of column forms um and I, I decided I would bring these into the gallery in their role as a support, but making that support run from floor to ceiling. So they're mimicking an architectural form um, and, yes, making their sort of presence permanent, unlike what they came from, which, as you say, is the sacrificial object. And there are also um, a number of plinth-based sculptures in the exhibition which... Um, we might also see here behind us, um, sometimes relating to very classical still life, you know, sometimes relating to sort of sculptural maquettes, um, more constructivist forms, and sometimes they also might be, you know, ambiguous in scale, which could almost transform from small scale to, to larger scale. And more recently, um, as Pip um, mentioned, you've been commissioned to make some significant public scale works. The Devine Commission is one, which is at Tate Britain, which we can see in the slides in the sort of neoclassical galleries. Um, and then also um, the Empire work, which was commissioned for Central Park by the Public Art Fund. Um, so perhaps I wonder if you can reflect on what happens when works move from being, you know, of a studio scale and a gallery scale to, uh, or the scale of the Marquette to an architectural scale and or work in public space? I think there's a number of considerations that happen. I mean, usually when you're doing a work for the public space, there is a specific space to consider. So, I mean, I, I am quite sort of keen on the idea of the generous public sculpture, that it actually allows a space for people to be sort of within and without, that it doesn't, I said before, that it doesn't, sort of obstruct or block, but creates another space. So I would see the public sculptures as having that, sort of, that, that it would it feel necessary that they have that sort of functionality within the public realm. The public realm is such a corporate thing to say. Sorry, that's always what comes up, the public realm. Anyway, um, so... So that would always be a consideration, and that's quite different then than in the in the gallery, because also in the public realm, uh, people haven't made a choice to engage with your work. They just come across it, which doesn't mean that the work can't be challenging or aggressive or difficult, but it means that you have to, well, you have a sort of social responsibility, I feel, to ensure that it allows some level of engagement and it's not just a sort of plonked narrative. Um, I feel quite strongly about that. Whereas 
in the gallery, there's a different freedom because once somebody's sort of crossed the threshold to the gallery, they've sort of entered into a contract to engage with your work. And it's not the same as we have in the theatre where people have sort of, or even here where you've come and, I mean, obviously you can walk out if you want, but there's a sense that, you know, you'll probably stay. Whereas the gallery is a much more sort of meandering experience. You can run in and out, you can stay as long as you want. So, so there, is a, there is a contract, but it's quite loose. So I feel that the idea of sort of allowing for the audience to experience the work unfolding, especially in a suite of galleries like you have, for me is actually the ideal experience rather than the thing I dread, which is the look from the door uh, and then the sort of leaving without really having seen anything but the pictorial view of the, uh, of the gallery. But I think that it allows then for... Um, and also by its nature, an outdoor work usually is quite singular, which is not something I sort of generally do within my indoor work. So the gallery experience allows for the work to, I guess, create different sort of um, different conversations because the conversations happen both between the viewer and the artwork and then also between the works themselves. And those uh, connections might not always be in agreement, you know, and I'm quite interested in that, in, in the sort of dissonance between objects as well, rather than perhaps that everything is an affirmation of a single point of view. Um, so I think that the sort of audience engagement is different with the different scales of works, but also the uh, degree of intimacy you can achieve in a gallery, especially where you have different rooms, I think is... is um, for me, is the sort of ideal opportunity to, to show work. I'm not sure if that answers your question. And perhaps just leading from that, um, you, have, you have been interested in the social relations between sculpture and audiences. And more recently, that's led to an interest in performance. And many people may have seen a work by Eva um, at the Sydney Biennale called Boys and Sculpture, in which um, Eva constructed an installation within a gallery space and let... Um, loose a group of young school-aged boys to do with that installation as they as they will, um, and more recently you've um, made a work in collaboration with the choreographer Joe Moran at the Institute of Contemporary Art in uh, Contemporary Arts in London in 2015, and it was recently restaged last week I think in Kettle's yeah. Yard. Um, there are other works behind us with people playing with snakes, um, people yeah. climbing sculptures. So. Um, and we are next week, as Pip mentioned, we are also developing um, a collaborative work with um, Joe Lloyd as choreographer. Um, uh, it's a work for 10 dancers within the space of the exhibition in dialogue and in relation to Eva's sculpture, for which Eva has also contributed to the costume design. So I wonder if you could reflect upon your interest in the dynamics of performance and the sort of social context um, in relationship to sculpture. Um. Yeah, because I think the collaborative thing I find quite difficult, but then I quite like opening myself up to that also. I'm just trying to see. It should come up in a minute. It'll be quite obvious which one is the one with the dancers because there's dancers in it. Um, but with uh, Jo, it's Jo Lloyd here, it's quite open because she's sort of making her work and my work is there and then we I've contributed the costumes. And so it feels quite open in terms of collaboration and quite exciting in that way because she's kind of got to trust that my work will allow her to do her thing and I've got to trust that. So it's a kind of broad collaboration which I think is really, um, like I'm very excited to see that. Yeah, this is the uh, piece for dance that I made before. Um, and uh, so I'm really, I'm really kind of intrigued by that collaboration and that sort of openness and also one of the things that is quite I mean it's it's kind of clear within a gallery context that you can't really handle everything you can't touch anything you can't or you can to an extent but it is a, it is a sort of slightly vexed kind of area because I make quite a lot of things that you can sit on I'm very interested in creating a space where people will stay with the work so I always provide seating in my exhibitions um one of the elements of this show, the curtain piece, as you've said, is, um, I hate the word interactive, but it's, you can interact with it. Um, uh, interactive suggests like, I don't like that. But um, 
you can be with it, you can be within it, yeah? Um, and so th there is a sense of, uh, rather than interactive, a sense of activity that you can engage in with the work. But um, there isn't the same sort of, I suppose what I'm saying is that the work is all made through human activity and then that disappears from it, you know? And so having the collaboration with the dancers, with the choreographer, um, with the boys, which was a different type of collaboration. Um, and you can see some of that film on YouTube um, if you just Google boys and sculpture, Eva Rothschild. Um, the, the, it, it, sort of may, it, it gives a way for that sort of sense of the body to be brought back into the work because the work's all made by the body and, the, and then it, it goes, you know. I mean, in the work we have here, there's all these uh, upholstered objects you know, which in the studio were hand-dyed, man-handled all over the place, waxed by hand, you know, and then they appear as these kind of sewn by hand, you know, and then the hand disappears. And so bringing in the performers and their sort of physical activity sort of brings the work back into proximity to the body, and that interests me as a way of... I suppose re-engaging with the with the human, with with the body as maker, but in a different format because I, it doesn't work to just say, "Oh yeah, you can all just handle this work," you know, because that the work doesn't stand up to it. And what do people do when they say you say you can handle something and they just handle it? It's like it doesn't lead anywhere. Whereas, I mean, it might, but. That's not my experience. Even if you look at, say, the Franz West adaptives, people kind of lift them up and then just put them down again, you know? And uh, whereas, like, if you are working with a choreographer, because they have such a sort of depth of bodily learning, in a way, it allows you to see, perhaps, the physical possibilities that the work, the sculptural work may be suggesting that would be uh, with my expertise to know because I don't have that depth of knowledge. And what, um, you do have boys yourself. Um, what was your instruction to those, to the boys in Boys and Sculpture? So the boys in Boys and Sculpture were told that they could, uh, I mean, do people know that work at all? Because if you don't know it, I should say that, so I made an exhibition of my works in a uh, gallery and uh, I invited a group of, I think it was 11 boys from the age of 6 to the age of 12 uh, to come in and to look at the works. Uh, some of them had been to art exhibitions before, some of them had not. And uh, they were asked to look at the work, um, and this was my instruction to them, to look at the work for as long as they could and to explore it with their eyes. And if they, uh, when they felt they couldn't just look at it any longer, they could explore it through touch. Um, and then the other instruction was just that they wouldn't get in trouble. So um, they looked at the work for about 10 minutes and then they dismantled the exhibition completely and then they um and then interestingly enough they split into sort of some different factions and the younger children actually used quite a lot of the um components of the work to make their own objects and the older children generally acted out more um kind of socially normative uh kind of what you call like boys play of sort of football, sword fighting, um, with the objects. And then, um, yeah, that's the film, basically, Boys and Sculpture. Um, and so with that film, I was really interested in, and it comes back in a way to, well, to two things, oh, Boys and Sculpture. Um, it's, for me, it was again a way of reintroducing the body into the work. And it also related to my interest in, because I actually have a, although, you know, you were asking me about feminism, and uh, I have a really abiding interest in masculinity and making um, as a feminist or as a, as a human, um, because as well, a lot of that is influenced from my own experiences as 
in terms of arriving at being a sculptor. So I went to an all-girls Catholic school in Dublin. We did not have any access to any making whatsoever. There was no woodwork, there was no metalwork, there was no technical drawing, there was no workshop. It just didn't exist. It wasn't... You know, I didn't grow up in a sort of family that were very rigid in their sort of views around those things, but there was no um, sort of way into that, into making for me. So it, it never even occurred to me that that, that could be a way of, of sort of working, although I did always want to be an artist. There was no sense of making as a possibility. And then when I went to art school... Um, I think as is the experience for many girls, I mean, hopefully it's changed now, that despite being quite a confident person, the level of confidence you needed to go to the workshops to approach the sort of scary technician, to ask them to teach you even, uh, to admit that you didn't even know how to hold a saw, you know, was, it was such that it just made it like too much trouble. And I think sort of, I, I sort of, you know, found my way through my degree. I actually did printmaking in the end. Um, and and I sort of moved to where I am in my work. But then when I began to teach myself, um, I was struck by how much, at the Slade School of Art in London, I was struck by how much this dynamic was still playing out. And the, the even though I knew that in the schools here, girls wouldn't have been as... Um, you know, constrained in their in their learning about the physical world, and then also I have three sons as well, and I was very interested in their engagement with the physical world and their sense of, dare I say, sort of entitlement, in terms of sort of creating their own world. And so, but then on the other side of that, I was really interested in how boys are perceived in the world as trouble as well, especially in a group. And one of the things that really struck me in making that film was how the boys were so joyful in their, uh, both in their making and their destruction, and in the sense that they were actually allowed to do something. Because so much of our, um, well, I don't know how it is here, but within in the UK, certainly in Ireland, so much of uh, boys' education is around controlling their behaviour, and so much of it is geared towards um, what is often seen as sort of female sort of goodness as opposed to the boys' badness. And I was very interested in creating an environment that both kind of gave them the sort of latitude to actually enact what they wanted to enact. Um, and also the sort of joy around that. But then in terms of the art, I was also interested in the idea of transformation and we talked about interactivity I mean to me that was interactivity that was interesting interactivity they transformed the materials as much as I transformed the materials to make the works and so it was like taking something to its logical conclusion um, and then the, the works that were the sort of detritus from that show was then used onwards in a series of workshops um, until like really there was it was really gone, you know. So it also, I suppose, was challenging the idea of the permanent artwork and the sort of idea of conservation and stasis within materiality because I'm always looking for transformation within materiality rather than stasis. Um, I'm mindful that we want to leave some opportunity for people to ask questions. Perhaps um, just one last question from me. Um, and it might be too early to say, but next year you are representing Ireland um, at the Biennale in Venice uh, in, in May next year. So can you give us any insights into what you might be doing? It's too early to say. <laughs> um, I, can say I can say confidently it will be sculpture. Um, perhaps um, if there are questions from the floor, it's, it's hard for us to see the audience at the moment, but um, we... I wondered if you could say something about the importance or not of words um, in your work. You've used them um, as forms, but also um, you talked a little bit about titles and it just made me reflect also on um, the, the importance often of words in that process of transformation or transfiguration in the Catholic sense, you know, that, that they are part of a ceremony or a process and they have a kind of symbolic or poetic um, effect 
Um, what if you could speak on that? Um, I think the words are important in the work in relation to the titling of the work, certainly. And one of the primary functions for me of the title is to direct or misdirect. Um, and I think particularly in the case of quite formal works, it's sort of, I think that the um, title can change the work. So if you consider a work that could be called, you know, I don't know, well, I would say I've got a work in this exhibition called Cosmos. It could be called Untitled Three Screens. And that would be a very different kind of direction of the viewer. And also, obviously, primarily the language, well, to me, primarily the language of art is visual and non-verbal. But we are much more comfortable with the verbal. I mean, even when I, as an artist, go to see an exhibition, I'm immediately, where's the text panel, you know? And I think it gives us a sort of like, a, it's, it's like an orientation, like a tool. And so for me, the, um, the way that the title functions is like a sort of poetic sort of bracket to the work. And it can perhaps lead somebody in a direction that's opposite to what they expect. Or it can sort of very firmly locate the work in perhaps the expected materiality that it suggests. Um, do you write your artist statement uh, before you f fully complete your artwork or you come the concept first? Uh, what is the procedure? Thank you. I generally try to avoid ever making artist statement unless I have to apply for something. Um, so I would say that in terms of an artist statement, I would only ever write an artist statement under duress. So generally, I would only ever write about a work that doesn't exist if I was in a situation where perhaps I had to propose for something like a architectural project or a funding application or say with sort of Venice, something like that, where you have to you know, write something for funding, that kind of thing. So usually I would say I really don't like writing about work that doesn't exist. So ideally, I would only write about work that exists. But ideally, I wouldn't write about it at all. So I don't think that's very useful to you, sorry. No tips. Oh, yeah, and I keep it as short as possible. Please join me um, in uh, thanking Eva Rothschild very much for her very generous... Thank you. Um, You have been listening to an ACCA podcast recorded by ACCA, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art in Melbourne. To listen to more from us, subscribe to ACCA on Apple Podcasts or follow ACCA on SoundCloud. To find out more about our exhibitions and programs, visit acca.melbourne and sign up to our mailing list.